continuing in Matthew's Gospel. Continuing in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. Page 4. I don't seem... Is my mic on? No. It says it is. <laughs> I can't turn it up from here. Yeah. Can you hear me now? No. Okay. So it's... We're going to have to do a little undressing here. You know what you could do um, is turn on the pulpit mic. I'm sorry for this. This is, this is the problem of not having somebody at the soundboard. If anybody feels badly about enough about this... So. Take that on as a ministry. So this will be cool when you listen to the uh, when you listen to the sermon on on the uh, website. It'll have all this in it. So so now we have a pulpit mic. If you just adjust the sound, you can probably just leave it where it is and then come back downstairs. That'd be great. So, all right, let's start over. Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 43 through 48, continuing with the tough messages that uh, Chuck read. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For God makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We celebrate the written word of Scripture. We celebrate the living word, Christ among us. Please pray with me. God of love and courage, be in our speaking, be also in our listening, and speak to our soul's deep understanding. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Chuck, for getting the mic thing settled. I follow a Methodist pastor named John Pavlovitz on Facebook and Twitter. Pavlovitz has an excellent blog called Stuff That Needs to Be Said. A few days after the presidential election, 
He posted this on Twitter, or tweeted this, to be perfectly accurate. That whole love your enemies thing Jesus preached, much harder to do when you actually meet your enemies, ain't it, Christians? Hashtag gut check. Isn't that the truth? We're again looking at Jesus' challenging teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. We might think about his words this morning in the same way that C.S. Lewis thought about forgiveness. Lewis said, everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until he has something to forgive. Likewise, loving our enemies is a beautiful concept until we're facing an enemy who is destroying our world before our very eyes and we're unable to stop it. An enemy perhaps like ISIS, perhaps the suicide bomber who walked into a Sufi shrine in southern Pakistan a few days ago with enough explosives to kill himself and at least 80 other people. Or maybe the teacher who's bullying your child. Could it be the Breitbart editor who tried to speak at UC Berkeley last month, or the people who shut him down? Or the neighbor who lets his dog bark all night long? The current administration? Or the mainstream news media? Or that kid who convinced your son or daughter that using drugs was cool? We think about these folks. And then we start thinking maybe loving our enemies is for other times and places. Maybe Jesus was unrealistic. Maybe this was more of that ancient Middle Eastern hyperbole that we saw last week. Maybe right now we need anger, hatred, and contempt, if not worse, to address the threat, make our world safe again, and then we can wave the flag of loving our enemies once all our enemies are out of the way. Some people say that Jesus, what Jesus is asking here is just impossible, that he couldn't really have meant it. And they argue that Jesus didn't really expect us to do any of this. He only said these things to remind us how much we need God's forgiveness and grace. They bolster this theory with the seemingly ridiculous command at the close of the passage, be perfect, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. I don't blame anyone for thinking, you've got to be joking when you hear this. Especially when these are the last words we'll hear in the Sermon on the Mount before we transition into Lent. Perfection sets a pretty high bar on Lenten disciplines. But here's the thing. Jesus is not asking for perfection. Jesus is asking for persistence. The root of the word that our Bibles translate as perfection is telos. Perfect is one possibility, but better translations are completion, intended goal, determined end. In other words, Jesus is not asking us to be perfect, but to persist in the goal that Jesus has set for us. Being a disciple does not require perfection, but persistence toward bringing the kingdom of God to bear. We are to persist in loving our enemies. Really. I think this raises two questions. Why and how? 
One answer to why is because Jesus said it. But as we talked about last week, Jesus wasn't all about following the rules for the rules' sake. Another reason, as I explained to the children, is that God loves everybody, absolutely everybody, so who are we to hate those whom God loves? But there is a more practical reason. Jesus knew what Martin Luther King Jr. put so well. Why should we love our enemies, he writes? Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Hate multiplies hate. Violence multiplies violence, and toughness multiplies toughness in a descending spiral of destruction. So when Jesus says, love your enemies, he's setting forth a profound and ultimately inescapable admonition. Have we not come to such an impasse in the modern world that we must love our enemies? Or else? The chain reaction of evil, hate begetting hate, wars producing more wars, must be broken, or we shall be plunged into the dark abyss of annihilation. The chain reaction of evil, hate begetting hate, wars producing more wars, must be broken, or we shall be plunged into the dark abyss of annihilation. And beyond this, Hate destroys the person who hates. Dr. King, again, wrote, Like an unchecked cancer, hate corrodes the personality and eats away its vital unity. Hate destroys a man's sense of values and his objectivity. It causes him to describe the beautiful as ugly and the ugly as beautiful, and to confuse the true with the false, and the false with the true. So that's why. But how? What does loving our enemies look like? I'll share with you a couple of practices that help me with this. They boil down to thinking of love in terms of compassion. I don't do them perfectly, but I persist. The first I learned from Brene Brown's book, Rising Strong, Brown had an encounter with an obnoxious roommate in a hotel at a conference, and that sent her straight to her therapist's office. The therapist challenged Brown with this question. Do you think it's possible that your roommate was doing the best she could? Brown's immediate reaction was, are you kidding me? And so being a researcher, she went into research mode to find out whether other people think that people are always doing the best they can. This turned into a journey of personal transformation. Brown noticed that everyone who thought people aren't doing their best were hard, unequivocal, and judgy in their responses. They didn't just say no, they said hell no. On the other hand, the people who believe people are doing their best were slow to answer and seemed almost apologetic. They just couldn't give up on humanity. They were careful to explain that it didn't meant that people can't grow or change. Still, at any given time, they figured people are normally doing the best they can with the tools that they have, given their experience, their upbringing, abilities, and brokenness. Brown's husband, Steve, answered the question this way. I don't know. I really don't. 
All I know is that my life is better when I assume that people are doing their best. It keeps me out of judgment and it lets me focus on what is and not on what should or could be. People so often ask Brown the next obvious question that she says, I should win the most likely to be asked about serial killers, terrorists, and assassins award. Writes Brown, do I believe serial killers and terrorists are doing the best they can? Yes. And their best is dangerous, which is why I believe that we should catch them, lock them up, and assess whether they can be helped. If they can't, they should stay locked up. That's how compassion and accountability work. Hold people accountable for their actions in a way that acknowledges their humanity. When we treat people like animals and expect them to emerge from prison newly minted as loving, empathic, connected people, we're kidding ourselves. Requiring accountability while also extending our compassion is not the easiest course of action, but it is the most humane and ultimately the safest for community. I practice believing that people are doing the best that they can, given their particular woundedness, which leads to my other practice, which is to see the person that I would tend to label as my enemy as a wounded child. When I see someone acting out because of, say, narcissistic personality disorder, just to choose a random example, My practice means seeing a person who has never known love, or more likely has only known transactional love, who has only known approval for successes, but does not know any possibility of being loved in the messy failure failure that is real life, not for others and not for himself. But let me be as clear as Brene Brown on this point. Neither of my practices means that we ought to refuse to call out evil or injustice when we see it. On the contrary, Christians must stand up in loud, strong, and unequivocal opposition to injustice. As one commentator writes, we must love our enemy while protecting his victims from him. These are a single act of love. Loving the enemy, protecting the victims. Hugh Hollowell runs an organization called Love Wins. It's a ministry of presence and pastoral care for the homeless and at-risk population of Raleigh, North Carolina. It tells a story about Erica. Erica is not nice. She's rude and mean and bigoted and often very drunk. She's always on the brink of homelessness. Several times a year, she ends up in a relationship where she gets physically abused, But she's figured out that if she hits first, it's harder for people to hurt her, so she's also an abuser. When she shows up for the ministry's breakfast in the park on Saturdays and Sundays, she cuts in line, pesters folks for money, complains about the color of the free jacket she's been given, or says someone else got a nicer one than she did. If she isn't watched, she'll cut in line for extra shoes and a jacket, and then she'll end up taking those to exchange them for her next fix. She yells at the Latinos in line and complains loudly that they smell. Erica herself is black, adding more racial tension to this equation. 
Hollowell said he often wishes she'd just go away because every time she shows up, he has to remind himself of what it means to love someone you don't really want to love. Then one day, Erica's annoying behavior hit a new low. One of the organization's volunteers is Samir, a kind and gentle man from India who lives in that gray area between being housed and homeless. Samir was wrestling a coffee urn out of the trunk of the car. Erica shouted, I don't want that Arab touching my food. He looks like a terrorist or something. Hollowell says he just couldn't take it anymore. He shouted at Erica, shut up, just shut the hell up. Samir is our guest just like you are. If you don't want the food he's touched, you can leave. Erica mumbled something under her breath and Hollowell is pretty sure it wasn't, I love you. She took her food and marched away, and Hollowell was thankful for the quiet. He remembered a story in the Brothers Karamazov, in which a young widow talks to the wise old priest about her future plans. She tells him of the dreams she's been having, in which she's showing Christ's love by serving the poor and tending the sick. But as the priest leaves her house, she worries that the poor will be petty and rude, What would she do if they were unappreciative and demanding? She isn't sure that she could handle it. The priest tells her, Love in practice is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love in dreams. Hollowell writes, I think that priest must have known some Erica's. As it turned out, the next week Erica returned to breakfast at the park, Hollowell thought, oh boy, here we go again. But Erica approached him and apologized. She said, I was wrong, and you were right to chew me out. Can we be friends? Hollowell said yes, and Erica gave him a bear hug, got in line behind some Latinos to whom he was grateful. She said nothing. I think there are a handful of takeaways from the story. First, that tidy, happy ending... Erica's apology doesn't always happen. There are no guarantees that loving your enemy will work by giving us what we want in any given situation. We just know that it works better than anything else in bringing about God's kingdom. And Jesus doesn't say it's easy. Love in practice is harsh and dreadful at times. In an article I read this week, a theology professor wrote, One central idea I try to impress on my students is that if you're finding it easy to be a Christian while largely living by the standards of our broader culture, you're probably doing it wrong. The second takeaway is that maybe loving our enemies means at some level discovering that we're more alike than we want to admit. We lose our temper. We respond selfishly. We're afraid. We want what we want. As Dr. King wrote, there's some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. And the third takeaway is that loving our enemies means calling out the oppression, calling out the bad behavior, even when that's not fun. Because in asking for the oppression to stop, we are calling out the value of not only the person being oppressed, not only the victim, but of the oppressor as well. 
We are calling out the oppressor's humanity as well. We are saying, you are a child of God too. We expect you to act like the child of God that you are. Hollowell says that he and Erica aren't quite pals, but they are civil, and when they run into each other, they're civil to each other. He writes, the last time I gave her a biscuit, she said thank you, and I didn't want to punch her. So maybe she's progressed more than I have. But we are working on it. We are working on it. Martin Luther once said that the Christian life is not about arriving, but always about becoming. We might translate that perfect verse, be perfect verse, loosely as, Be the person and community God created you to be. Just as God is the one God that God is supposed to be. If we read it this way, Jesus' words to us are less a command than a promise. God sees more in us than we do. God has plans and purposes for us. God intends to use us to achieve something spectacular. And that something spectacular is precisely to be who you are and were created to be, and in so doing, to help create a different kind of world. Jesus calls this new world the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, where violence doesn't always breed more violence and hate doesn't always kindle more hate. We are working on it. May it be so for you and for me. Amen.